Hi, I'm Jade Siri Ramos. I am the producer of A Public Affair. Did you know you can find our show anywhere you get podcasts? Just search A Public Affair wherever you like to listen, and you can find us, and you'll never miss an episode. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground, another pirate station. We bring the truth to places truth is never heard before. We bring the sound communication of our tribal war. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a public affair. My name is Nanal Makashri, and I'm your host for the hour. At Denour is off this week, and today I am so excited to have a very special guest joining us here on WORT. John Shelton is a Associate Professor of Democracy and Justice Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. He is the author of Teacher Strike, and today we will be discussing his new book, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. Thank you so much, John, for being here. Nada, uh, thank you for having me, and uh, I'm so excited to be having this conversation. This is uh, going to be a lot of fun. Oh, it's going to be so much fun. Uh, just to read from the, the book, uh, in sort of a synopsis, the education myth questions the idea that education represents the best, if not the only way for Americans to access economic opportunity. As John Shelton shows, linking education to economic well-being was not politically inevitable. In the 18th and 19th centuries, for instance, public education was championed as a way to help citizens learn how to participate in a democracy. By the 1930s, public education, along with union rights and social security, formed an important component of a broad-based fight for social democracy. So this book was really a tour de force for me, and it led me on a personal journey that wasn't without its challenges. I kind of found myself uh, really figuring out what education meant to me and how it's been uh, kind of shocked to me as a, as a, you know, someone who's in between being a millennial and Gen Z. Uh, and so it was really, really eye opening and something that I needed to read as someone who delves into kind of education policy. So thank you so much for writing it. Uh, and, you know, how long have you been working on this book? Well, that's a great question. Uh for a very long time. So you, you <laughs> mentioned you mentioned Teacher Strike that came out in 2017, and you know I, I'm trained as a labor historian, so I, I never thought that I would necessarily write about uh, public education. Um, you know, when I when I was in graduate school, I was really thinking about the the question of you know power in the workplace and you know what it means for working people to fight for good lives, and of course our nation and our state have a very rich history of that. Um, and I ended up writing this book about teachers in the 1970s. And as I was writing that, I, I, I coming out of that, I, I really realized how important education was, especially public education, in terms of how Americans think about really everything, but but especially their political choices. And so when the book came out, I was already kind of thinking about this second project. And what really there were two things that really crystallized for me the the reason I needed to write about this topic more. One was my students. So you mentioned, you know, kind of being a young person and, and thinking about how education has been sold to you. Uh, when I when I was, you know, uh, having my classes in 2014, 15, 16, and talking to students about their futures, many of them were very pessimistic. And I, I don't think that's gotten a, a whole lot better in the year since. Um, their economic futures, they were very pessimistic about them, but they also realized that you know college or they thought you know college is the only way that the only chance i'm going to have even though there's going to be no guarantees i've got to rack up this debt i've got to figure out how i'm going to get a job and college is sort of the only avenue to do that the second thing that made me think about this topic was the election of trump in 2016 and one of the biggest dichotomies between voters who voted for trump and voted for clinton was whether or not they had a college degree that was one of the there was about a 30 point spread between those two groups and so I said, this, there, there's really something here that we need to, to pay attention to. And so, you know, I started kind of researching more in earnest at that point and, you know, doing the research and writing it. I wrote a lot of this book during 2020, during, during, the, during the lockdown. Um, and, uh, you know, so and then it was, you know, pretty much ready the last year or so, obviously, and, and, and now it's out. So it's, it's been, I guess, about six or seven years in the making, and uh, I'm really, I'm really proud of it, and I think it's a, it's a conversation that we need to have. Yeah, I, you mentioned the 
you know, pandemic. And I know many of us kind of observed how those safety nets that we assumed were ready to catch us uh, really kind of failed or ripped apart when the pandemic happened. How did COVID itself as a, as a you know, political social phenomenon influence the premise of this book? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that I think I think you put it exactly right. I mean, what what COVID did is it 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 really underscored how much individuals were dependent on the labor market, you know, and the and the functioning of the economy for even the you know pittance of economic opportunity, economic security, whatever you want to call it, that that they had. And so all of a sudden, this the, a lot of the assumptions that Americans had about how things could work were kind of blown open, right? And especially when all of a sudden hey, when the economy shuts down, it's actually okay for the federal government to step in and shore up people's incomes. We can actually have a society that functions without evicting lots and lots of people. And, and so I think, um, you know, you kind of already had a lot of the, the discontent. And one of the things I get into in the book is how the 2016 election kind of blew open both parties, right? On the, on the, on the left, you had a Democratic Party that had gone on this trajectory of neoliberalism for a very long time with education as sort of this pivot point, right? That, hey, if you are if you don't have a good job or, you, you know, um, you, you, trade policy is making it more difficult for you to have a blue collar livelihood, go back and get the right education. And that's essentially the only thing the government's gonna do for you. Even with no guarantees, you're gonna have to take that debt on yourself, by the way. And then Bernie comes along and says, no, we actually don't have to do that things that way. On the right, Trump blew up a lot of the assumptions too, right? Because he, he, he said, you know, we don't have to accept the, the, the way things are, the way jobs are organized either. He said, I'm going to come in and I'm going to basically like, uh, you know, bully corporations into keeping blue collar jobs here. Of course, that was a fantasy, but it, it blew open a lot of the political assumptions. And then I think several years later with COVID, you know, it, it the, the thing that COVID did was magnify a lot of the economic security that people had, especially for well, remember the whole discourse about essential workers who, yeah, we're going to we're going to, you know, praise people on social media about how essential they are, but we're not going to guarantee them union rights. We're not going to you know, make sure that they have a living wage. And when you combine that with the fact that, you know, big government interventions were something that were suddenly possible again, I think we're in a completely different moment than we were actually around the time that I started writing this book. It's It's been pretty interesting to reflect on how much things have changed in just that short period of time. Yeah, this book reads in in a very interesting way. It's set up as a timeline through history, exploring education as it's received and as it's, you know, um, politicized. Uh, start from the beginning of the founding of our country all the way till till now, uh, till Bernie Sanders. So I was hoping you'd give us kind of, you know, a brief run through that timeline uh, of what the education myth was and what's it, what it has become. Sure, and I'll, I'll I'll focus on that brief part of that because I could, <laughs> as my students will tell you, I could do I could do this probably for the next couple of hours, and we don't have that time. Um, but you know, when I when I first started writing this, you know, I'm I, I'm not a historian who focuses on the 18th and 19th centuries. My work has always been on the 20th century. In fact, pretty much exclusively on post 1945. So I wasn't initially thinking that I would go back to the nation's founding, but when I started doing the research, that was something that I learned really quickly. I need to go back to the nation's founding because you sometimes hear there's economists who talk about this now. Right. Who, and they say things like, well, you know, the American education system was put together because different Americans wanted job skills or something like that. Or, you know, it was it was primarily for economic development. And the reality is that wasn't true at all, actually. So for, when the, the U.S. education, public education system was constructed in the 19th century, it had almost nothing to do with jobs. You know, these education reformers, people like this Massachusetts uh, reformer from the Whig Party. I don't know if anybody knows anything about the Whig Party. That's obviously a party that's no longer around. Uh, but Horace Mann, you know, he he when he talked about the need for education, it was about developing citizenship to a certain extent, you know, kind of maintaining different social hierarchies. Um, but it wasn't about education at all. And that's really, really important because we've, I, I think um, my generation, as well as your generation, I think we're pretty close, but I'm reasonably sure that I'm, <laughs> I'm significantly older than you. Um, 
you know, our generations have basically been told that this is the primary function of education. It's there to help us get jobs. And the reality is for most of American history, that hasn't been the case. And it's really important to recognize that. Now, I don't want to romanticize things because when the system of public education, and these were constructed in states at the time in the 19th century, Massachusetts, but then actually Wisconsin was a very early kind of state that, that um, you know, created universal public education. These were exclusionary in many, in most states, they excluded African-Americans. Um, you know, uh, they were premised on the idea that both uh, boys and girls should be educated, but, but girls educated primarily because they would instruct the new generations of male citizens. So I don't want to sugarcoat this at all, right? There are definitely things we should be critical of, but we should recognize that the purpose of education in the 19th century was not about um, creating jobs or helping people to have skills to do jobs. In fact, when the um, this massive inequality that was that that came to be in the United States and in, under industrialization in the late 19th century, when that happened, the Gilded Age, sometimes we talk about being in a second Gilded Age now, right? That was the first Gilded Age. The primary way that working people fought for more economic security, again, had very little to do with education unless it was about teaching new generations of workers to understand their democratic rights and how to organize. The, the main thing that they did is they formed unions. They fought for reforms, things like workers' compensation, which, um, you know, the United Wisconsin was the, the first uh, state to do that. And, um, you know, so the, the struggle of the for much of the 20th century was about this push for what I call um, social democracy, for more rights for all working people. The education piece doesn't start to become the, at the center of American politics until after World War II. Well, thank you so much for that brief um, synopsis. We will be back to listen to more in detail about the timeline of the education myth. Uh, and we'll turn to John Shelton in a few minutes. But first, you're listening to WRT, listener-sponsored community radio. My name is Nadella Makashfi, and I'm in the studio today with my friend Charlie Pittman. Uh, we're here to talk about the reasons we support WRT and ask you to join us uh, during this pledge drive uh, the two ways to donate are online at wortfm.org slash donate or by phone at 608-256-2001. I, for one, have been such a huge fan of a public affair and WRT uh, for many years. It's kind of surreal that I'm hosting a show <laughs> on it or have been for a while. Um, and I'm always nervous about it. But uh, friends like Charlie really makes the experience so much fun. And I you know, I'm so appreciative of the work that y'all do and just the goodness that is WORT. Oh, nada. I think I'm going to cry, but it's <laughs> it's so good to see you and hear you in conversation. And I'm so glad that you are here um, to fill in for Esti Denora while she's away. It's unfortunate that Esti can't be here today, but uh, hey, fundraising never stops. So um, we are here to ask for your support in our winter pledge drive. The phone number to call 608-256-2001. You can also pledge online at wortfm.org. And uh, and when you make that call, you talk to Warren or Gary or Jill out front in the lobby and Patty. We have a full crew. Wow. And that's because we're, we have a high goal to meet, Nada. We have some serious business to do here. <laughs> What's our goal? Our goal is 15 donors okay. this hour. We can do that. We can do it, but we need your help. So we needed to call in during this hour. I know it's hard to tear yourself away from the conversation for a couple minutes. <laughs> John, yeah. Uh, but now is the time to do that because I'm going to keep talking for a couple minutes and then we'll return back. So yeah. you won't miss a thing. 608-256-2001 or online at wortfm.org. And Nada, guess what? What? We have some people to Yay! thank. I mean, maybe that wasn't a good bell sound. Maybe I should do a do closer. It again. There we go. That was much Straight louder. Straight into my headphones. Sorry about that. <laughs> um, so we do have some people to thank. Uh, uh, the the Warren, Gary, and Jill, and Patty have been kind of rotating into this I room. <laughs> You're like, what's going on? Uh, no, we have some people to thank. So David Kettler, we want to thank you, David, Thanks, from David. Blanchardville. Uh, David's favorite shows are The Morning Buzz, Amy Goodman and Democracy Now!, and of course, Friday, A Public Affair with Esty Denure. Yeah, thank you so much, David. Um, 
as well as Douglas from Madison, who uh, also did not pick up a thank you gift. It's just giving oh. because he really appreciates the program that Thanks we put on. His favorite sh- wart shows is A Public Affair with three exclamation points, <laughs> along with the local news and global revolutions on Monday morning. Oh, awesome. We also want to thank Harry Richardson, who is also a WORT volunteer. Oh, cool. And uh, Harry, also not picking up a thank you gift, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, loves uh, a public affair, the local news, and labor radio. And Harry says he appreciates Esty's hard work on the show, and Nada, I appreciate yours oh. as well. And we have one more. And okay. I just want to point out that Harry Richardson, I, I don't know if you listen to the local news on Mondays, but mm. he does a couple segments. One is a labor history segment oh. that is themed into that week that has, you know, that on this date in labor history, like 70 years ago, yeah. here's what happened, yeah. right? Um, and that's not the only place that you will hear labor news highlighted. Yeah. And I just want to highlight that because John, your guest, is, you know, he is. started as a, a labor, labor historian. historian. Yeah. And Wart is a great place to listen to and learn about labor. I did not, I'll be honest, know a bunch about labor when I arrived, and I'm still learning. But Labor Radio, our news show on mm-hmm. Fridays, um, has a half hour of local labor news, which is wow. incredible. <laughs> I, I challenge folks to find another place, another radio that station that. that airs that, at least in Wisconsin, because yeah. I'm, I'm not sure of one. I yeah. don't know of one. Um, and in that theme, I'd also like to thank Anne from CWA and AFSME. Um, Anne's donating from Sun Prairie and her first, second, and third favorite shows are Labor Radio. Okay. But we're going to thank her now. And she says, I I hope this will count toward the Labor Radio Challenge Grant. I'm not sure if that's going to happen. I I, I wish I could tell you more, Anne. But um, I just want to really highlight the incredible focus that WORT does have on labor issues. And if you think that's important, you know, we did it when labor issues were maybe a little bit less in vogue and they've become more in vogue because of the pandemic, which is a good thing. Um, support that reporting and support these discussions. The phone number again, 608-256-2001. Call Warren, Gary, Jill, and Patty out in the studio. Or you don't have to talk to anyone when you pledge online at wortfm.org. So we hope to keep those running. We need 15 of you. We have four down, so we need 11 more of you to pledge during this hour, during Nada's uh, fantastic conversation with John Shelton. WRT is so great for many things, labor for sure. Uh, such a big day for labor too. Yeah, uh, We're going to be returning to a public affair with our guest, UW Green Bay professor John Shelton. Uh, please give us a call or donate in the meantime. Uh, you'll help us track uh, to be on track to make our goal. Uh, John, I hope you heard all that labor talk here at WRT. <laughs> you certainly are part of the labor family. Um, and I wanted to kind of bring us back to this discussion by talking about something that you mentioned uh, kind of straight away in your book, the promise of American democracy. And I'm wondering if you think that, you know, if we have a long way towards, you know, fulfilling that promise or if we're making steps, you know, to it. Yeah, uh, I'm happy to answer that question. Let me just underscore that you all should donate to WORT. <laughs> uh, this is uh, this is the kind of stuff that just doesn't exist in a lot of parts of our state. So so please do that. And uh, I am a fan both of this show and labor radio show. So uh, please please donate. Um, the promise of American democracy. Yeah, um, you know I think uh, I th- I think we do we do have some ways to go. Um, what made the American Revolution important for me in spite of all of its limitations? Mm-hmm. And there were some very dramatic limitations that I probably don't need to remind people about, but maybe I will just to just to do it. Um, you know, of course, uh, many of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, more than half, uh, were slave owners. Um, women were not full political participants. Uh, we're actually a lot of people don't r- realize this, but uh, most men in the United States couldn't vote uh, after the the Declaration of Independence because they didn't own property. There were property requirements in virtually every state. So there were many, many limitations. However, you know, the 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 rhetoric and I and I, I follow Danielle Allen's work on this. Uh, she's a professor at Harvard and, and ran for governor of Massachusetts, who argues that the promise of the Declaration is something that we all should own and force the country to live up to its own ideals. The promise of the Declaration has been really important throughout American history because it's allowed people who were excluded, and I do talk about this in the book, 
Um, you know, people like Frederick Douglass, whose monumental speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, concluded that the promise of the Declaration was really important in destroying the institution of slavery. So, you know, and you can you can take that to Eugene Debs in the 1890s, who, you know, talked about the importance of labor, uh, the promise of the Declaration and the importance of, of that for labor. And so I think where we've really gotten off track, if you think about the again, the promise of the Declaration, which is that government is uh, instituted to secure the rights that right. I mean, that's the role of government to secure the rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Those are rights that have to be, we have to find them in a more modern society in the economic sphere. And so how can you, how can you have life? How can you be free? How can you pursue happiness if you don't have a job and you don't have the kind of job that gives you democracy in the workplace? If you don't have healthcare, if you don't have the, if you don't have a place to live. And so that's where I think, you know, the promise of our country has fallen short, but where I'm encouraged is the activists that have, you know, tr push for greater democracy throughout the course of especially the 20th century around the economic question people like martin luther king you know who was advocating for this thing called the freedom budget which a philip randolph and, and bayard rustin these two civil rights activists created in the 1960s that said we should ensure that people have all of these things we should and that and that is what it means to truly have life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and i'm encouraged by especially young people today who are organizing in unions and, and organizing for, say, a tuition-free you know, future in higher education. Uh, but those workers at Starbucks right now, who many of them are you know, very young people, some of them in college, some of them who have recently graduated, who are voting to unionize and, and forcing one of the wealthiest corporations in this country to treat them with the kind of dignity that, this, this, that the, the promise of the declaration offers, I, I am encouraged, much like Douglas was encouraged, actually, in 1852 about the future of this country because of its ideals and the efforts of so many Americans to force this country to hold up uh, up to them and make the kind of country that we all deserve. Yeah, we were talking a little bit before the show started about how partisanship sometimes uh, kind of distracts us from those common denominators that we all share, those rights that we should all, you know, really live by and be be given by our government. And if we kind of take uh, the politics out of it, we find a lot of alignment. And I felt that your book did a really good job of, you know, equally kind of putting pressure on both sides of the aisle when it comes to political parties and how they've furthered the education myth. Uh, so I was hoping you'd go into a little bit about, uh, you know, how the conservative and the liberal movement kind of move away from that American promise. Yeah, not a, I'm, I'm just so tremendously glad that you asked this question because, you know, I think it's, it's not going to be a surprise to, to many people who probably most people listening to this um, but but certainly academics, you know, who a lot of academics are going to read this book, uh, that most of those folks are Democrats. And, you know, what I really wanted to do in this book was to have Democrats be introspective about their own history and the role that uh, they, we, I mean, I'm a Democrat, uh, have played in uh, the creation of this myth that has made our politics so problematic, frankly. And so what I point out is, you know, you've got, let's go back to the New Deal for just a moment. The New Deal promised, it was, it was a transformative moment because it promised economic rights. I mean, FDR, as my good friend Harvey Kay will, will tell you, you know, uh, came up with this uh, idea for us for a second, an economic bill of rights in 1944. That was kind of the cap of all the things that the New Deal had promised, but also uh, a vision for how to kind of take the, the promise of the New Deal into the post-war period. And that was that was sort of what structured American politics in, in the 1940s, 50s and, and, and 60s until you get to the Johnson administration. And so, you know, Johnson is president in the 1960s. And what the Johnson administration does is it sees poverty as this big problem, mainly because civil rights activists were forcing them to do it, by the way, and said, all right, what do we do about it? And that's how you get the Great Society. And the Great Society, I think a lot of times we romanticize that and we say it had all these you know, great reforms and there were good reforms. There was, that's how we get Medicaid and Medicare, um, for example. But embedded in the Great Society is also this idea that if people are poor, the thing to do about that is to give them job skills, not ensure that they have jobs, right? Not, not in, enact the, the freedom budget, which would have guaranteed, say, African-Americans who are disproportionately suffering from poverty in many of the nation's cities a job and housing, right? 
Um, and so the, the, the problem is that kind of starting at that moment, uh, the next 40 years of the Democratic Party was an increasing embrace of the education myth. So in the 1970s, Coretta Scott King, Martin's widow, right? She's pushing for a federal jobs guarantee. There's some great work about this. Rita, there's a great article by David Stein about this, who talks about why Coretta Scott King was fighting for a jobs guarantee. And the Carter administration basically says, no, we're not really interested in that, right? Because we believe that um, the government should do less. And so instead of uh, actually making that happen, the Carter administration does things like elevate the Department of Education to a cabinet level position, which in itself isn't a bad thing. But when you're not having enacting any other kind of reforms, it just signifies that education is sort of the path forward. Then you've got the creation of the Democratic Leadership Council in the 1980s that Bill Clinton is the head of. Clinton comes into office in the 1990s, sort of with the DLC behind him, and negotiates NAFTA and, and passes this crime bill in 1994 that is a big reason why we have so much mass incarceration. And at the same time, does nothing to help, you know, working people except say, we're going to we're going to retrain you for other jobs. And, and so that that trajectory kind of continues into the Obama administration and to a lesser extent after that. And so what I say, what I argue in the book is Democrats need to be introspective about the role that we've sort of played in purveying this myth and move past it and, and move toward this sort of greater call for economic security, in which education is a part of it but not the only way that people access, you know, uh, a good economic livelihood. And Republicans play a role, too, because in the 80s and 90s, people like the presidents like the George Bushes are like, all right, the Democrats are doing this. That must be successful. Let's do this, too. That's how we get No Child Left Behind in 2001, this bipartisan, I call this the mountaintop of the education myth, this bipartisan reform, which has been so damaging to our public education system in the past 20 years. So there's there's plenty of, of culpability to go around. And I think it's important to recognize how this idea at the center of our politics has been so problematic. So that's why I look at, you know, kind of to use the way you frame this, both sides of the political aisle. And we'll leave it at that for now before the break. Thank you so much, Professor Shelton. Uh, again, you're listening to WRT, listener-sponsored community radio. I think this is my, is it my sixth time hosting you're doing great yeah it sounds like it's you've been doing this for years so i'm still i called you this morning anxiety <laughs> attack about you know being nervous to talk to the professor and just you know being in the studio but it's always so great to be around such a good and professional team uh that just knows the working of community radio like no other oh. so that is another reason why you should give today uh there are two ways to donate um wortfm.org uh forward slash donate or by phone at six oh eight two five six two zero zero one and have we made our goal yet not yet <laughs> um and i just want to say nada we're so lucky to have you you here too um hosting conversations these are important conversations they are. that the, i mean this show a public affair brings to you um i got distracted a little bit by just how beautiful this new book is yeah, i love the smell of new books and also <laughs> it's just like a beautiful cover but um the content inside is also really important Absolutely. right yeah. and the goal of the show is to hopefully help you think about um issues in the public sphere a little bit differently or apply a critical lens and i know that's what sd tries to do um um, you know, when she hosts and also uh, uh, something that you carry on when you host, Nada. So I appreciate you doing Thank you that. So much. Um, and uh, Professor Shelton, it's great to have you here. Um, but to your question, Nada, yeah, we haven't made our goal yet. We need, uh, let's see, I have to do some quick <laughs> math. We need nine more of you to call in cool. this hour or pledge online. The phone number, of course, is 608-256-2001. You have it memorized. Oh, <laughs> had it memorized years and years ago, but there's a sign up here oh. just in case. <laughs> there it is. That's your cheat sheet. It is. 608-256-2001. That is the number to call. That's the number you call uh, when you want to leave a comment on a public affair, when you want to engage you and mm -hmm. ask, ask you to ask questions of our guests as well. Uh, but for today, we're asking you to call that number um, to give back mm -hmm. because you take um, you you take ideas away from this show and we need your support to continue this show and many others all of the shows on WORT you can of course pledge online at WORTFM.org our goal for this hour is to have what was it 15 
19. No, 15, 15. donors. Okay. 19 right. not bad. I hate that's my <laughs> personal goal. So we have we do have some new folks to thank who have uh, pledged to this show. Thank you to Steve. Thanks, Steve. We want to thank uh, Steve Wolven, who uh, is an active participant in these conversations um, on a public affair. And Steve has pledged multiple times this pledge drive already, uh, but he's giving again because when we ask, what are your three favorite WRT shows? It's one word, and that's SD. <laughs> so we appreciate that. Uh, and when he continues on the back, SD has great guests of national and world importance. We agree. So pledge to support that high quality caliber of guests that we have on this program, 608-256-2001. We also want to thank Jim from Loganville. Jim pledged online at wortfm.org. Thank you, Jim. Jim says, I like a public affair, Melon Floyd, jazz, and jazz and blues shows. Um, so thank you so much, Jim, as well. So we're on our way, but we need to keep that pace to hit our goal for this hour. So do you want to do the honors and, and say the ways to give? Absolutely. Uh, you can. There's two ways to give online at wortfm.org forward slash donate or by phone at 608-256-2001. Uh, me and Professor Shelton will be speaking more about his new book, The Education Myth, How Human Capital Trumps Social Democracy. Uh, you can listen in. And if you're a little bit distracted, we will be back on another break and you can give that. Sounds Thank good. Thank you so much. Meanwhile, Warren, Gary, Jill and Patty are waiting for for your call, 608-256-2001. Thanks so much, Charlie. Uh, John, thanks for all you've been uh, saying uh, so far this hour. I think one thing I highlighted for myself to mention is that you do such a good job in this book kind of balancing the the historical perspective, the nationwide perspective, but then there are also little gifts of uh, narratives from Wisconsin that you use to tie in everything, uh, especially since Wisconsin is such a you know, pivotal place for a lot of our, our politics, uh, especially around education. So I was hoping you'd go into, you know, our uh, Act 10 and the Scott Walker's administration's relationship with education and the education myth. Yeah. Um, you know, th this was something that was fascinating because when I when I started writing this book, you know, I thought this was going to be just a kind of national story. And I, I'd, I, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very involved in labor politics here, you know, for folks who don't know my background, in addition to being a professor, I'm also the president of my local union, uh, UW Green Bay United, the faculty and staff union here at Green Bay, and also vice president of higher education for AFT Wisconsin. So, you know, I, I come, I, I've been fighting a lot of these battles, frankly, for the past uh, decade or so. I've actually been here 10 years now. And so it just seemed weird to see all these local connections and to think about all these local connections and to not involve Wisconsin, especially Nada, because as you said, Wisconsin is so pivotal. It's, a, it's both a kind of a bellwether, but it also is kind of transformative of a lot of things happening in, in national politics. So, you know, I, I actually start the first chapter of the book by looking at the Wisconsin idea, which is something that I'm guessing a lot of listeners have heard about. It's used so much and in so many different contexts that I think uh, it's become almost meaningless, unfortunately. But when the Wisconsin idea was created in the late 19th century, and highly recommend folks checking out some of Chad Goldberg's work, a professor at UW-Madison on the Wisconsin idea, um, it, it really wasn't about you know, partnering with corporations or helping people get jobs. What it was about was coming up with evidence-based solutions so that the university system could in intervene in the political system and help uh, navigate and, and reform the, the gross inequalities that existed in uh, the, the nation's economy and the nation's politics. So um, that's really what the Wisconsin idea is. And what I argue there is this is just another example of how education at, for the first 150 years of American, uh, American history really wasn't about helping people to get jobs and instead was about this connection to democracy. So fast forward there, right? Many of those ideas that coming out of the Wisconsin idea, Wisconsin's the first state to have a workers' compensation law in 1911 that's partially connected to the Wisconsin idea. 
many of the sort of New Deal ideas in the 1930s come out of the Wisconsin idea and connect and, and academics in Wisconsin. Read Dan Kaufman's book, The Fall of Wisconsin, if you don't know that one for some some of that um, explanation there. And and so, you know, you get to, uh, to the 20 teens and I, I then say, you know, you've got this this state with this history of social democracy. And so it's it's really fitting that it's in Wisconsin where the right is able to kind of um, uh, use use some of the failures of, of Democrats, frankly. And, and here I really mean national Democrats, not so much what Democrats in Wisconsin, but use the, leverage those failures of Democrats at the national level to ensure that all working people have good economic livelihoods to enact these incredibly reactionary reforms that have actually hurt everybody, every worker in this state. And so one of the things that Walker did in 2011, 2010, or 2010 actually, when he was running uh, for his first gubernatorial election is he pitted uh, blue collar workers and, uh, or sorry, private sector workers and public sector workers against each other. He said public sector workers are the haves and private sector workers are the have nots. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest occupation for public sector workers? It's teachers, it's educators. And so what he was saying is the pain that blue collar people were facing, especially in the context of the economic crisis after 2008, when you know, corporations were going to war on their pensions and driving their wages down and, and you know, preventing them from having unions. He was able to, you know, leverage that resentment and drive people against each other. And that's part of the reason why he was able to win that election and then get Act 10, which leveraged again that discontent. And in many ways, I argue in the book, kind of set a playbook that Trump was able to mobilize when he ran for election in 2016. So the Wisconsin story is really, really pivotal. And I'm glad you mentioned Trump because I I realized this on the car ride here, uh, but you titled How Human Capital Trumped Social Democracy. Was that Trump piece kind of a play on uh, Trump's influence on this? It definitely it definitely was. <laughs> uh, I can't take credit for it, though. My my editor for the book came up with that part of the title and I, I loved it. You know, I think it, it clearly shows, you know, what I'm trying to what I'm trying to do here and connect this to the to the Trump phenomenon. Uh, but but yeah, that was that was definitely <laughs> intentional. And what was that Trump phenomenon as it relates to the education myth? OK, yeah, that's a that's a great question. So uh, the election of 2016, uh, this is kind of what I cover in the last chapter. And what I say here is that the election of 2016 showed that the education myth was being, you know, dismantled. I, I don't think it's totally gone. Right. I mean, we obviously still have people arguing that education is there primarily for economic opportunity. But I think it, it, it showed that the kind of consensus that existed in, say, 2001 under No Child Left Behind was coming apart. And, you know, if, if you if you think back for folks listening to this to 2015, 2016, when everybody was saying that uh, when everybody was saying that, you know, that that Trump had no chance, they weren't paying attention to the kind of people that he was capturing in the Republican primary, this primary, you know, that that really blew open the doors of the, the party. Um, and, and, uh, you know, um, again, people said that he didn't have a chance and we're, you know, we're not, we're not taking him seriously, mm -hmm. but what, and the, and the, and the reason that Trump won that primary was, was very complicated. I, I don't want, I want to be very careful about this because I don't want to dismiss the element of racism that existed in Trump's campaign mm -hmm. and, the uh, not even dog whistle, just overt signaling to voters to come out and, and, and say these kinds of things are okay, calling Mexicans rapists, et cetera. However, there was a significant portion of people who voted for Trump who were disaffected with the economic conditions of the country. So there was something like five to eight million, I want people to think about this. There was something like five to eight million voters that voted for Obama in 2012 and then voted for Trump in 2016. Now, it's hard for me to square that and think that those were, mm -hmm. you know, crypto racists or something who were voting for Obama. I think these were people, some of them were probably union members. Many of them were in that demographic of people without college degrees who were fed up with a system that it looked like they weren't going to have a very good future. And Trump, even if it was fantasies about, you know, I'm going to bring back these jobs, that was a, a protest vote for many of those people. And I, and I, and so I think in that sense, the Trump phenomenon is very important because it, it highlighted some of the clear discontent that people had with the nation's political system. I, I think there was a, a note of hope in your book, and 
for me, when you mentioned the Great Society, uh, Democrats, specifically Obama's promises that weren't met, um, there was this differential in how they talked about, uh, you know, these these economic uh, changes that needed to be made in the United States, where they talked about, you know, education as sort of and giving you the opportunity to get a job, whereas FDR spoke about, you know, the right to have a job, the right to a living wage. Uh, Do you think that we can, just with a slight language change, kind of affect some of those those changes in our philosophy to get towards uh, a more just, equitable system here? Yeah, yeah. And I, I really like the way you, you frame that because that's actually a very radical idea, the mm-hmm. idea that people are entitled to these things. But it is just a slight language change. That's a, that's such a great way yeah. to put it. You know, and and that's that that is so important. Um, you know, what it re- what I'm really arguing in this book, th- this is a book about education, but it's also a book that's about so much more than education. Right. I mean, we've already been talking about that. What I'm really offering at the end of this book, and it's and it's it's different than I think the way a lot of other historians write things. I'm very open about my advocacy. I'm very open about what I think should happen. Mm-hmm. And really, when you talk about economic rights and so, you know and social rights, what you're saying is a very different vision of the future. One in which people have high expectations. One in which people have the kind of lofty expectations that this nation promised with the idea of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was such a radical idea in spite of all its contradictions. And that's what a rights-based approach to an economy brings us. It, it, what it says is every single person is entitled to the kind of economic security that they need to live good lives. And then once you have that, what you do after that, it's about having options, it's about having opportunities, but everybody's needs need to be met and everybody needs to be treat, treated with what the, the philosopher Michael Sandel calls social esteem. Every job is valuable. Everybody deserves to have rights at work. Everybody deserves to have dignity. And once we can do that, we're going to have a political system where people aren't, um, you know, just thinking about the needs of corporations and the power of the wealthy and the millionaires and billionaires. Right. Um, we're going to and that will also be the kind of society where people aren't screaming at each other on social media. It's going to be mm-hmm. one that has a functional democracy because people are going to feel valued and feel like citizens. And so, yes, that's absolutely what I'm advocating at the end of this book. And I think we have to get there if we're going to save much less, deal with any of the contradictions that continue to exist in American democracy. Yeah, I think you, you one thing I want to mention before I forget, you wrote that the myth has increasingly relied on the fiction that the economy is a meritocracy, that those who succeed in getting the right education deserve economic security, while those who fail to get a good job deserve their fate. And you called it uh, the tyranny of merit. And it, it connects a little bit to what you said before. How do you, you know, advise policymakers, politicians to move away from this language of tyranny of merit? Because as someone who works in the capital. Um, it's something that you, it's its so foundational to political language, this idea that you have to work to earn something instead of, you know, you know, having, living and thriving as rights that you deserve. How do we move away from the tyranny of merit? Yeah. So, so first of all, I can't take credit for the tyranny of merit. <laughs> I, I wish I, I wish I could, but that's, that's the title of Michael Sandel's excellent book, which okay. people should read. Um, but, you know, Absolutely. We have to move beyond that. And if you think about the work that calling our nation a meritocracy does, it makes people feel um, like they're responsible for the the bigger economic conditions. Right. No individual controls the labor market. They don't control what jobs are available to them. They don't control, you know, how much housing is going to cost or how much childcare is going to cost. And so if you basically tell people that they deserve what it is they've gotten, it makes it, it it makes people number one feel bad about it but number two it makes them feel helpless and like they can't change things and so as i'll just say in the entire political system but certainly as democrats we have to move away from that and we have to say everybody is everybody deserves to have their needs met now of course there are things that uh you know should be meritocracies you know like i i want i want the medical profession to be a meritocracy i want the best doctors you know to be uh practicing medicine it has to be a fair meritocracy, of course, not one where people who have the ability to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars of, 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 in loans are the only people that can become doctors. 
So there are, it doesn't mean that there's never going to be, you know, um, competition and meritocracy. Those things can still exist, but it's about meeting people's baseline needs. And not only should we do this for moral reasons, but I'm, but I'm so convinced that the party that does this can actually win the most elections and, and completely restructure American politics in a good way. So it's, it's in politicians' best interest to understand that. Absolutely, absolutely. And we'll leave it there for now, but we will be back to close out with John Shelton in a few moments. First, again, you're listening to WRT, listener-sponsored community radio. The most important part of that is listener-sponsored community radio. My name is Nadal Makashvi, and I'm here with uh, my friend, Charlie Pittman, and we're here to talk about reasons why we support WRT and ask you to join us uh, during this pledge drive. And when I was getting ready ready for this, uh, interview today, I was listing kind of all the things that I loved about WRT. You were. And one of my favorite things is that it feels like a little public audible library, that WRT is kind of an archive of Madison's best moments, our worst sometimes too, and kind of just yeah. our story as Wisconsin. I do a lot of research for my day job, um, and I can't tell you how many times WRT pops up or a podcast pops up when I'm looking at stuff that relates to policy, hey. especially education policy. So um, that's one of the reasons why I love WRT. What do you like about WRT, Charlie? Nada. That is fantastic. <laughs> I just have to echo that. I mean, it's like you're checking out a book from a library, right? Yeah. But you, you don't have to do all the pain of reading. <laughs> no. We can deliver it to you in a microdose here Absolutely. on A Public Affair. And we do interview a lot of new authors, thinkers, um, and have these kind of broad-ranging conversations that, um, thank you, Jade, that <laughs> that uh, that we bring to you here on A Public Affair. And where else would you hear, what, what do I love, Nada? Yeah. Look, I was a philosophy major. You can't get a job with a philosophy <laughs> major, but you can work at a radio station where you hear a com- communitarian philosophers <laughs> mentioned in the course of an interview. So that's, you know, Michael Sandel. That's what I appreciate about WRT, <laughs> especially about Estes show, mm-hmm. um, taking this very critical, uh, progressive lens, a, a look at um, international and national and local issues. Um, but hey, uh, enough about us, more about you. We need about 10 more of you, a little let eight more of you to call in (laughs) in the next seven minutes we kind of need a grand slam happening absolutely can i can i I jump in for a minute absolutely john i'd like to offer something i'm i'm so inspired by this conversation that uh, I'm willing to offer a free signed copy of the book. Amazing! Uh, yeah. Yes. I, I think what I think what we can do is have folks call in, and and I will just have folks at the office draw anybody who calls in in the next, you know, who's called in this hour. Uh, I can give a, I'm happy to sign a copy of the book and, and send that out. So. Well, thank you so much, John. And to be clear, that's one, one signed copy. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have Correct. the chance yes, to yes, enter yes, a raffle. <laughs> um, and uh, we will, of course, check with you to make sure that's okay if you are the winner. But thank you so much, John. That's yeah. so kind. As someone who just read the book, that is a very great gift to get <laughs> and even the even the signed copy i know i got a sign he does have great handwriting <laughs> pretty great <laughs> so that can be uh could be yours you can enter the raffle when you call 608-256-2001 that's the number to call please give warren and gary and jill and patty uh, a call and help us meet our goal for this hour again we need 15 of you to make that pledge this hour you can also de- donate online at wortfm.org we do want to thank Tom Cash from Madison, Tom? who just donated. His favorite shows are A Public Affair on Thursdays and on Fridays, as well as Democracy Now! Democracy Now!, of course, very important as well. Absolutely. Um, I mean... It has the word democracy in it, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Okay, um, well, before we go, before we transition and just spend a couple more minutes with John, I just want to also thank Bonzo, our food donor this hour. Nada. Thanks, Bonzo. Uh, we are looking forward to eating that in like seven minutes when as the show's a, over. As a Middle Eastern East African, I am so excited for Bonzo. <laughs> I, I like half finished my pita and yeah. it's just been like sitting here st- with a lot of chili Staring sauce. Staring at you, waiting. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very excited. So thank you so much to Bonzo. Um, and yeah, make that call pledge online wortfm.org bring us to the home stretch please thank you <laughs> you heard it here thanks charlie uh john thank you so much for your generous offer uh before we close it up 
Uh, I kind of want to know what's the core message? You have a lot of messages in this book, but what's the core message you'd like readers uh, to take out of the education myth? Yeah. Um, I don't know if, if folks listening to this know the the film, the John Carpenter film, They Live. Uh, highly, mm-hmm. highly recommend uh, watching that that film at some time. It's a it's a fun movie. It's set in the 1980s. And there's a there's a really long scene in there where it's got pro wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper is one of the, one of the characters. It's a weird movie, uh, but there are these these uh, glasses that people can see that, that people can put on, and it allows them to kind of see that their entire world has been infected by uh, aliens from outer space, but that are using consumerism uh, to basically keep people in the dark and from seeing the truth. And so in this movie, um, there's sort of this this fight scene, literally, where um, one of the characters is kind of forced to put on these glasses and like see the world as it actually is. That's what I want people to do with education. I want us to think differently about how we think about education in this country, because we've become so um, used to this idea that education is just something that's there for us to that's going to give us a good job. And that's the only thing we can do is give people the skills that employers need when a whole host of other ideas are available. We don't have to do things this way. We don't have to have generations of people who are taking on tens or hundreds of thousands, in some cases, of student debt just to have the chance at a good job. Everybody deserves it. Everybody deserves health care. They shouldn't have to rely on an employer for it. Everybody deserves the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And and if we can, I'm not saying education and the education myth is the only reason we're in this situation, Mm. but I think if we take away that kind of justification and the work that that's done to, to um, keep this economic and social inequality in place, we can have a world that's so much better for all of us. That's what I want people to take away from this book. Amen. That is what I took away from, from this book. Thank you so much, John Shelton. Uh, where can people pick up uh, The Education Myth, aside from donating at 608-256-2001 in the next one minute? <laughs> uh, you, can, you can get it at Cornell University Press. You can also get it at the nation's monopoly online bookseller, whose name I won't mention, uh, but it is available there. Uh, Both of those places would be good places to get it, as well as local independent bookstores, too, I think. Awesome. And what's the third installment? Real quick, you said Teacher Strike was first. This is uh, the second. What's next for you, John? I think you're uh, uh, telling me that I have another installment. I think so. I want to read one. (laughs) (laughs) That that I that I haven't mapped out yet. Uh, but, you know, what I am doing over the next year is is working really hard to get people to understand this, uh, fighting for public education in our state. And, and really, you know, that's the that's actually the Wisconsin idea mm. is connecting the academic work that that folks are doing at the university to the activism that's necessary to change things. So for now, that's 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 what that's I'm working on. And, and hopefully there'll be a third installment. Oh, point. we're we're looking forward to it. Thank you so much, John, for joining me today. Uh, my name is Nada, uh, subbing in for Etsy Denor on WORT. I will see you next time. And before we go, Nada, I just want to uh, say a quick thank you uh, to couple more folks Yay. donating thanks to anonymous from madison anonymous has a, a riff on <laughs> us uh they say shali what do you enjoy about wrt you set me up and they said i should have said nada which i think i did but <laughs> oh, of course thank you, anonymous. i appreciate hearing <laughs> nada on wort and all of our fantastic hosts one last time 608-256-2001 you can also pledge online at wortfm.org we want to thank ann and jim and tom and anonymous and David and Harry mm-hmm. and Douglas and Steve. We still have 30 seconds for you okay. to help us meet our goal of 15 donors this hour. 608-256-2001 or online at wortfm.org. Wow, <laughs> Every dollar makes a difference when it comes to raising money for it. Hey, you know what? I'll say it. This is the Wisconsin idea it too. Is. We are bringing education to your ears and hopefully not making it painful. <laughs> 608-256-2001. You are listening to WORT 89.9 FM, Madison listener-sponsored community radio. Up next is Mel and Floyd. Keep those calls coming. Don't take no prisoners if you can't afford to feed none. Don't start no fights if you cannot predict the outcome. Don't make donations where you can.